Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, episode three, and Christian Lavers, the CEO and president of the ECNL, has another jam-packed show for you. Christian Lavers will join me in segment one and segment two, and we have some big-time guests. Up first, it's Carlos Bocanegra, the technical director for Atlanta United, indeed a model franchise for MLS. He's also on the board of directors for U.S. Soccer, and we are proud to say he is going to be a new inductee into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, so well-deserved. Following Carlos Bocanegra, Shay Groom, who played in the ECNL, is now a star in the NWSL. She scored three goals for the Houston Dash as they won the Challenge Cup, and she scored three goals in the final three games of the NWSL Fall Series, earning herself a call-in to the next camp under Coach Vlatko and the U.S. Women's National Team. And we wrap up going back to the ATL as we're joined by Nuno Patera, who's the executive director of the Boys Academy for GSA. Always good to spend time with Nuno. Christian Lavers joins me in the hot seat with Carlos Bocanegra after this message from the ECNL. With over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players, the ECNL is leading youth soccer forward in the United States. A new season has kicked off and a new brand identity has been launched, but one thing stays constant. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, episode three, and we got a big timer to kick it off. Carlos Bocanegra, the technical director and VP for Atlanta United of MLS, a model franchise indeed. He's on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, and he's the co-chair of the U.S. Soccer Technical Committee. The former captain of the U.S. national team made 110 appearances for the full team, scoring 14 goals. He played professionally in England, France, Scotland, Spain, and of course, in the USA with Major League Soccer. He's already a UCLA Hall of Famer, but I'm so proud and excited to say that Carlos is now going to be in the US Soccer Hall of Fame. And Carlos, first of all, delighted to have you on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having me. I got to start with that because I know you've had a lot of big moments in your life and your career, both professionally and personally. But come on, man, US Soccer Hall of Fame, that says it all. Uh, it was really cool. It was a fantastic honor. Yeah, I was able to be surprised here at work. The president of our club surprised me and my wife and, and all them kept it a secret behind the scenes. So it was pretty cool, but what a recognition. Look, I love soccer. It's been my life. You know, I've dedicated 30 plus years to it. Hopefully it can do 30 plus more. Love every minute of it. All the friends I made along the way, the road trips and with club soccer, you're going to state cups and you're going to hotels and doing all those fun things with your friends. So 
That's been great. Uh, so I'm really proud that I uh, was recognized with that. Really appreciate you being on here, Carlos. And I think the first question that, that I would have for you is obviously now you're in, you're in the executive role, you're in the front office role. But when you look back at your career as a player that's been in so many different places and been through so many different unbelievable experiences, is there any moment that really stands out to you that you look back on with real emotion and pride? Or, or is there anything that generally you think about when you think about your playing days now that they're in the past? You know, one of the things that stands out to me was our win in the 2010 World Cup against Algeria. We almost had kind of a walk-off homer type situation, winning the game, winning the group, advancing on. Bill Clinton came down the locker room afterwards. We had a beer with them. That was a pretty cool time for us. I remember winning the national championship at UCLA. That was a great experience. Had a great group of guys. Ziggy Schmidt, who's no longer with us, was our coach. Uh, But just a great group of guys. I remember like the camaraderie. You remember the locker room? You remember the banter, the road trips, uh, sitting on buses, sitting on airplanes. Your teammates become your friends and, and they become lifelong guys. You can count on, you know, you're going out there into a tough situation on the field. And now afterwards, if you need to call them and you can lean on them still, I think the relationships you make playing a team sport, it's hard to explain, but it's something you don't lose. And so although I was fortunate to have some really cool memories with playing the Confederations Cup final against Brazil and playing in the World Cup and winning the Gold Cup against Mexico and Chicago. Really fun times, but I really take away the relationships and just all the fun times with my friends that I got to experience from five years old and up. That's really cool because you've obviously done it at the world's biggest stage on multiple different levels, but that connection with the relationships and the emotions and the teammates is obviously something that everybody down to under eight soccer can identify with at some level. And that's part of, I think, the beauty of the game. But now we look and you're, you're sitting in the role of technical director at, at a club that kind of stole the show in MLS in your first couple of years. Can you give people a sense of what your role as technical director is? I mean, what do you do on a daily basis? Because there's a lot of people who think about how exciting that job may be. So can you just tell us what you really do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, for sure. So my role as technical director, I oversee the soccer side of the business. So we have a business side, ticket sales, marketing, all that. And then you have the soccer side. So that's the sports science, the medical, the scouting department, coaching staffs. We have a USL team, the second division team, and then um, our academy as well. So that is my role day to day, really being the steward for the club, the long-term vision, a strategy for the club, making sure We're set for now, but also set up for the future. So as we're bringing players in, we have a scouting department that does a great job and that rolls up into me. And at the end, we look at the players and then eventually we decide to bring them in. On the coaching side, I don't do the on-field day-to-day coaching. It's really a collaboration with the coach speaking about when we bring a coach into the club, this is the style that we would like to uh, play. This is the player profile that we go and recruit, this is what we would like to look like uh, with these players. So if I could sum it up in one word, it would be the philosophy. And I know that's kind of the the buzzword that everybody likes to throw out there, but really trying to set the strategy, like I said, the the philosophy of the club of how we would like to play, the profile of player we would like to bring in, and then really driving the culture because you can have all these nice things set up, but making sure we hire the right people and we have people that want to work hard that are here for the team. They're not in it for themselves just to better their their career or get a better title. That is, in a nutshell, kind of what my job entails. 
So when you talk about that, which in many ways, I think that sounds like a dream job for people who are lovers of the game, but obviously you got great guys in your academy with Tony and, and young guys like Matt Lowry. And then you've had coaches that obviously Tito, who's gone on and done unbelievable things. And you've had a coaching change recently. So when you're talking about game philosophy, models, profiles, how much of that is fixed? How much of that evolves over time? Is that a discussion you have with coaches as they come in, as you tweak it maybe for one perspective or another, or is there really an Atlanta United way that ultimately is pretty solid and, and coaches adapt to? It's a little bit of everything that you spoke about. We definitely have the philosophy and the overarching vision, but in every business and every walk of life, we're always evolving, right? So we've got to make sure that when we're watching the league, we're bringing in the type of players that can compete against the teams in the Eastern Conference. So the Torontos, the NYCs of the world, the LAFCs on the West Coast, the Seattles, how are they playing? They're doing well. How are we going to combat when, when we go against them? Our matchups, the personnel. So you talked about the game model. You talked about the, the style of play. Those things overarching, we'd like to be exciting, high-octane, high-pressing, and scoring goals. Let's be honest. We want to see goals. Everybody wants to be excited and play soccer, right? It's difficult to do while also trying to win championships, which is our ultimate goal. So yes, we're always evolving and we have an overall structure. Obviously the coach is going to be able to utilize his intuition and his knowledge on the day-to-day. If tactically we need to adjust a little bit formations, we need to play a tad bit different. So it's not so rigid that we're saying we play a four, three, three, every game, We have to play like this, but over the course of the season, the idea is to say, I always use this one, I say, if we weren't wearing, you know, the Atlanta United jersey or the Atlanta United stripes out there on the field, my mom could point out that that's an Atlanta United uh, team. And that's from the first team to the USL team down through our academy that we have a certain style. You know what we look like out there on the field, whether it's in a 4-4-2, a 4-3-3, the formations are not huge it's the type of player and the style that we go out there and and implement carlos i got an easy one for you but i feel like i still need to ask it because it never gets old to hear the answer particularly somebody like me who started at major league soccer we used to have to bring in the monkeys to get a crowd arthur blank has brought a different mentality to what it takes to have a successful franchise you've been around some amazing people you've already said some of them but he has truly set the tone talk about what it means to work for him Arthur is a fantastic person. When I was coming on board, I was the second employee hired by Atlanta United. And so when I was coming on board, they flew me out here for my interview to come and speak with him. So I got to sit down with him and I'd read up on him and I'd I'd heard a lot of fantastic things. He had donated over 300 million in his Home Depot charities to the community and to society through his foundations. He had donated 100 million out of his personal wealth to the local charities in Atlanta and around the country. And then I got to sit down with him and just kind of face-to-face, see how he was, learn a bit more about him there. But the cool part for me was I got to go sit down with, he owns the Atlanta Falcons as well. And so I got to sit down with people from the Falcons. I got to sit down with people from his other businesses, executive that had been there for eight, nine, 10 years. What I saw there was the type of people that he had around him in these positions, the type, the quality of person they cared They were intelligent. They wanted to do the right things, but they were there for a purpose. And so you can talk to someone all you want, but then when you you go and speak to other people and they'll tell you the truth about that person, they didn't have to say anything because I could tell 
uh, the type of people they were, and everybody speaks so highly of them. But you know, now with the, the social injustice, you know, just the, the west side of Atlanta, which is a poverty-stricken area, um, you know, he put the stadium there and wanted to build it there and help develop the west side. So strategically, just he has a good heart. He gives back so much and tries to do the right things. A little thing, but everybody got hit by the pandemic, and it was a tough time. It's still a tough time. He took care of the stadium workers that are not on our payroll. He took care of all the Atlanta United staff and across all the businesses. Um, nothing changed. And he wants to be remembered for doing the right things. And while he was wildly successful and, you know, fantastic guy, success in the business world, also from a personal level, community standpoint, just everything else that goes into being a good person, he has that and that transcends and people want to be a part of that. And so I, I really truly feel that we got so much buy-in from the beginning and we had a great head start because people trusted that Arthur would do the right thing and do everything he could in his power to put a good product and a good experience out there for the fans on the field. So we got tons of buy-in early on and then it helped us kind of steamroll downhill. So you talked about a lot of stuff there, leadership and culture and a lot of things outside of the lines. And uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes is uh, Vitor Frada, the tactical periodization founder who says those who only know about football don't even know about it because you're talking about all these other things that wrap in and that affect what happens on the field and what happens in the culture of a club and that kind of brings me to one of the other hats you wear as a as the co-chair of the technical committee of u.s soccer you have a, a, a great spot i think where on one hand you're actually on the field in the grassroots actually practicing what you preach in terms of developing the next generation and then on another hand you're looking forward five, 10 years from the perspective of U.S. soccer and saying, where's the game going? So when you look at the future, youth, professional, the game generally, what are you looking at? What are you excited about? What are you concerned about? Where do you think we should be putting our attention when we're looking down the road here at what the game needs to do better? Yeah, so it's, it's fun to wear all those hats because I get to do a lot of different things. It's not the same thing every day. But, you know, I, I think when I look back, kind of going through ASO and just playing club soccer growing up in Southern California and now where the landscape is and how much more structure is around it, how much better the competition is, you know, the coaching, the players, everything has kind of risen to that, that next level. You see now players like Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, you know, name them down the road going overseas and having really good success. You also see kids like Pomichol in the league here, Aronson, the kid from Philadelphia, and others that are playing in MLS that have come through. So Miles Robinson here for our team, Youth International, Full Team International. The level of player has gotten so much better because so many people are invested in soccer. And it's taken us 20 some odd years to, to get there, right? And now I think we're at a, a really interesting point where we have started to crack that and, and people believe that Americans can play not only here, but overseas and, and we can become a top national team, but we can't stop. And, and I really feel like, the coaching education to get our kids technically superior or, or improve their technical ability at a younger age, as well as understanding at a little bit of a, a, a 15 and up, so to speak, that periodization physically as well. I think it's gone away from the kind of the soccer mom or soccer dad coaching the kids only. The American population now, these people that are parents to younger kids, they grew up watching the game or playing the game. So we've got that benefit now. I remember, you know, growing up, I, I don't think I saw a soccer game on TV until I was 18 years old. You know, I, I saw my first live soccer game at like 19 in, in Europe. So professional game, excuse me. 
So that stuff now, we have, there's so many games available. The people that grew up playing and loving the game now have kids that are playing. So we, we, we have that baseline, just like it is overseas and, and all around the world where hundreds and hundreds of years they've been playing the game and, and those generation generation just learn. You watch with your mom or dad on the couch. You talk about the game outside of your house. You talk about it out of school. You talk about the big games coming up. So I think that is amazing that we have so much soccer available to watch. And that's one thing that I would say for parents and young players alike. If you love the game, watch as many high-level games as you can and watch players in your positions. Watch their starting points when they're on offense. Watch their starting points when they take their shape defensively. It's so readily available out there, and you can almost start to model yourself after players. Uh, I mean, I remember Bob Bradley when I played for the Chicago Fire. Uh, I was a 20-year-old rookie coming in, and he goes, hey, come here, sit down, watch this guy, Paulo Maldini. I'm going to show you what he's all about. You need to model your game after him. And so he would show me all the time AC Milan clips. And I was sick of seeing freaking AC Milan clips, but what a fantastic player. And Italy is known for their defending. Long-winded answer, Christian, is uh, the coaching education and coaching development in our country. I think that's something we should really invest in a lot as a country. I also think then people taking it on upon themselves, watching as much soccer you can at a high level and players and parents, coaches alike, learning from that and formulating their own ideas because there's no wrong way or right way. You have your ideas, you believe in it, and if you can get the best out of your players on the field, that can be a successful model. A couple things you say there I think strike me. Number one, I think it was uh, Maldini who said, if you have to tackle, you've already made a mistake, talking about defending anticipation and positioning. But also, I like the fact that you talk about there isn't a right or a wrong. There's (laughs) things you can defend in terms of there's logic and structure to it and there's maybe chaos, but there's so much room for interpretation in the game. And I think that's part of the beautiful piece of it. Another issue you kind of touched on, this landscape of soccer that's grown so much, changed so much, evolved so much. And you guys in Atlanta, I think, have been able to create some pretty fantastic relationships with the youth soccer community with the clubs that have been there for a long time. And I know your staff in the academy and the directors of a lot of clubs in your area have a very good relationship with respect to pushing players forward and working together. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys look at the landscape and how you guys look to fit into it in a way that's additive and positive to all the other soccer going on in this country? Uh, Yes, so when we started Atlanta United, about five years ago, uh, we started the academy six months prior to us having the first team on the field in, in March. What the thought process was, was we went and tried to look at what other professional teams had done, uh, other youth clubs had done around the country, and what were the best models. Uh, what we didn't want to do is come in and say, hey, we're the big, bad professional team in town. Give us all your players. Get out of our way, so to speak, right? One, that's not the right thing to do. Two, it can alienate you from your community, and we saw that happen quite a bit in the old days with kind of MLS and USL teams whatever coming in. We didn't want to do that. So what we wanted to do was be a part of the community, and we really want to work together with all the clubs. And that was our goal, and, and Tony has done a fantastic job from day one really making those relationships. But you have Concord United, who's a great club in our town, and you know what? When we play them, it is they're kicking each other and fighting and scrapping. It's a proper derby. 
and they don't want to lose to us and we don't want to lose to them and they don't care that we're a pro club and we don't care that they're not a pro club. It is fantastic for the kids. So you need those battles around town. You need those local battles. Then we're fortunate enough that we have the resources to play in bigger tournaments and play against uh, international teams and, and get different kind of competition. But if we tried to come in and kind of take every single player from UFA, Concord, the likes of all the teams in our, our area, that's going to deplete them at all the ages. It's not going to be a competitive game. And by the way, what incentive do they ever have to work with us? And why do we then want to work with them? So it's really trying to build those relationships every time we are interested in a lot of the players because these guys do a fantastic job of developing the kids. Sometimes they come to us around 13, 14. Sometimes they come to us at 16, 17. It doesn't matter. There's plenty of good coaches. There's plenty of good clubs in the country. So that's the big thing for us is that we know that there's people developing players outside of our club, especially in Atlanta. Keep doing that. Let's work together. If there's an opportunity and we think this kid potentially has a professional pathway, let's see if he can come on over and, and let's talk about his, uh, his pathway, you know, his journey. So it's all about the community, and that's one of the pillars of our company. And that is also something that Arthur Blank preaches as one of the five pillars that we have to be involved in the community. These people are supporting us in our town. We want to give them support. So we do things like coaching education courses. Tony Evans, our academy director, he'll put on courses throughout the year, whether it's periodization, different tactical ideas, things that we are doing at the club, part of our philosophy. And it's more about learning and just having a different point of view. If people don't want to take that back and implement it to their club, it's no problem. They can also say, hey, that's great. Atlanta United is doing it this way and it works for them. That's not going to work in our environment. We actually need to do this. So it goes both ways, but I think it's more just about the learning. And like I said, we're trying to be a part of the community. We learn from other teams still. We learn, you know, like I said, people are developing players fantastic outside of Atlanta United. So it was really just making sure we're part of everything, Christian, the mindset that we're, we're in it together. And, and it's all for the, the city of Atlanta and kind of the state of Georgia. That's fantastic. And I hear things like respect and collaboration. And I think those kind of value-based leadership stances are really what marks good organizations and what create a better future. And, you know, I'd remiss not to say we were connected originally by Sarah Kate Knopfsinger, who obviously was our first commissioner and then went and worked at Atlanta United. And I remember I got a text from her one day and said, hey, you need to talk to Carlos. He's a good guy. I'm appreciative of her for that because I think our discussions and our relationships have certainly helped, I think, move youth soccer forward from the perspective of the ECNL. And we appreciate the opportunity to work with you, have your club participate in our league. And I know you have all sorts of leagues that you guys participate in and the way that you manage the development of your players. I appreciate what you've done. I appreciate the perspective on the sport that you have. I'm glad that you are one of the people that is is looking forward from a U.S. soccer perspective at what the future is going to look like. Thanks. Yeah, no, look, for us, we're, we're really pumped to be a part of the UCNL. Our thought process and the philosophy of, of the club on how we're developing players is we put them in a lot of different platforms to play. In, and we're, like I said, we're fortunate enough to have the resources to, to play quite a bit of international teams. We'll play the MLS teams, play in the UCNL. But it's all about the competition for our players and they need different types of competition. I know we're very fortunate here with uh, to be a professional club and we have the resources, but you play the local derbies, you play different styles, you play international teams, you play MLS teams, you become a well-rounded player. And I look back to my career 
and growing up again in club soccer, and it was so different back then. But I don't think I played an international team until I was like 17, 18 years old at Dallas Cup, I believe it was, and we played like a Mexican team. And it was just such an eye-opening experience. Their gamesmanship, their different style, how they approach the game, it was, you know, it was just so different than I'd ever experienced. You get just a different know-how of the game. You learn through those. Maybe you win, maybe you lose, but you get that experience and you learn, and you take it, and you put it in the bank. And nowadays, the kids are, you know, from all platforms, are getting experience against international teams at 13, 14, 15 years old. And that, that helps as you get older, that you're not so naive. That's one of the things I think as a soccer country, we're still pretty young and we're a bit naive on the field. That's not being disrespectful to anybody and not thinking I'm better than anybody because I remember myself being quite naive. You go, I remember playing Norway with the under 20s. You play against Portugal with the under 20s. They're a little bit of a different level. They're, they're a bit more savvy. You play the Mexican national teams at, at those ages, whether it's time-wasting towards the end of the game, knowing when to take a foul, and making sure you're, you're in the ref's ear in a good way, in a good way that you're trying to affect the game. But we can still be a little bit naive as a soccer country, and that's why we continue to preach that everyone, as much soccer as there is on TV now, try to watch it at the highest level and you learn all those things about gamesmanship and you learn about how to take the game to the next level because we're going to be technically just as good as any country around the world. We're going to be physically probably superior to you know 90% of the countries around the world. So we can hang with that. It's now, are we learning tactically? Are we learning, you know, it's instinctual, the movements that we make and when to do things on the field. And you start to learn that at a younger age and then it, it, it you know, it's pushed upwards and it's only going to make our national teams uh, and our leagues better. I got one more question for you. And we've talked about this briefly in the past, but when you talk about the complexity of the development process and the complex system of the human body, before you even talk about all the technical and decision-making and developmental perspectives and the psychology perspectives, but you look at your path and you've said a few times here, you know, you've played other sports. You didn't see a professional game until late in your career and, so you had a very unique path that ultimately ended up being on, on some of the world's biggest stages. And now the game's advanced in so many ways and there's, there is so much more available to the young player. What are your thoughts with respect to the individuality of this process and this journey of players and whether there is a way to the top or whether there's multiple ways to the top? And I'm not talking about anything about acronyms, but just about the development of potential and talent and who ultimately gets to the top. What is your, what's your thought on that for, for the young players that are, whether they're growing up in Nacogdoches or Milwaukee or New York City and just the different pathways that they have? The one thing I would say out of that, Christian, is uh, the mentality. If you don't have the right mentality and you're not going to be dedicated to whatever sport you choose, and again, you don't need to only choose one at a young age. That, that's not what I'm saying. And make the sacrifice it's going to be extremely difficult to make it to the next level. Even if you have a lot of talent, you see it time and time again. Every parent has told their kid, every person, myself included, has heard it from their parents. You've got to work hard or else, you know, you're not going to make it at that next level, whether it's in sports, school, anything, right? And so the mentality is so key. We see it a lot here. We have very talented players. Sometimes they get sidetracked with not wanting to care about school and that drags them down or they have off the field things that they care more about going to parties with their friends. And there's a time for all those things. There's a time for having fun with your friends and barbecues and this and that. But as you get a little bit older into your 
you know, your high school years, you, you've got to start getting serious about sports or school or music, whatever you're going to do, because everybody knows it's a sacrifice. And if you don't have the right mentality, it, it very, very rarely plays out. And I'll give you two examples, Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Messi. Everybody knows who they are. They're extremely talented players. They must play about 60 games a year at the highest level. They play with their club teams. They make all the you know, cup finals. They go far in the Champions League. They, you know, they're competing for a league title. Then they go with their national teams. They want to try to win the World Cup. So they get no break throughout the whole year. And they've been doing this for 15 years for their career. And their mentality to stay at the top of their game and continue to perform week in and week out when everybody's watching them and expecting them to do good things, they continue to do good things. They're ultra talented, but I'll tell you what, my buddy Tim Howard played with Ronaldo at, at uh, Manchester United, and he said Alex Ferguson would have to go out after training and drag the kid off the field because he hit free kicks every single day after training. It did not matter what day it was, and Ferguson would have to go drag him off the field. So it's the mentality People can be wildly talented in anything they do, but if you don't have the determination, the mentality to focus on, on your discipline, it's going to be very, very difficult to make it to the highest levels. Two more quick questions for our esteemed guest, Carlos Bocanegra. So pleased to be joined with the technical director and vice president and future U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer. To follow up on Christian, you didn't just play other sports. You were a big-time football player. I think you even got scholarship opportunities. Tell us what position you played and how close you were to maybe going to that other football, which is kind of neat now that you're at Atlanta United right there connected to the Atlanta Falcons. Falcons and in SEC country here in Georgia. I love American football. College football is one of my favorite sports to watch and, and be a part of. So, yeah, I, pl I played basketball growing up. I played American football, soccer, obviously, baseball, and I did, I did track. And I did all of those up until my junior year, and then I kind of focused on American football and, and uh, soccer. So I love, I love the physicality of the sport. That's probably why I played as a defender in soccer. But no, it was fun. I had some offers to San Diego State and San Jose State. But I'll tell you what, when I got on campus at UCLA and I saw the size of the football players in college, I, I, I was pretty sure I made the right choice to, to stick with soccer. I had a, a great time learning. I remember one time in the football field, which is a crazy thing that I, was play, I played as a defensive back and I played as a wide receiver. And I did the kicking. But I remember as a defensive back one time, I didn't kind of check my shoulder when the ball was, you know, the running back was running across the field. I didn't kind of check my shoulder and I got freaking smacked like the crackback block, right? And I was, I think I was about 16. I was a sophomore and I was like, ooh, okay, that's not going to happen again. But that, then you go, you translate over into the soccer world. And I played as a midfielder in, in high school soccer and club soccer. And, you know, you're checking your shoulder who's coming before the ball, you, know, you receive the ball. So it kind of, all different sports translate to, to each other, and they're, they're all fairly similar, but that's something I, I remember that, that stood out that kind of has transferred over to my soccer career. Carlos Bocanegra, so happy for you and all your success, especially happy that you're going to the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. You're going to be used to that red. It'll just be another red jacket for you, my man. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited. Like I said, it's a huge honor. Soccer has given me everything. Uh, I love it. So happy to be still working in the sport and really excited to see what the future holds because there's a, a lot of talent coming through on the boys and girls side. Women's national team is flying. The men's national team 
has a lot of promise coming in with a lot of these young, talented players. So excited to see what the future holds. Thanks for sharing your knowledge on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. You got it, guys. Thanks. Okay, stay with us after this quick message from an ECNL sponsor. We'll be joined by Shea Groom, crushing it for the Houston Dash. Three goals in the NWSL Challenge Cup that Houston won. Three goals in the last three games of the NWSL Fall Series. And it earned her a call-in to the next camp for the U.S. Women's National Team. Shea Groom joins Christian Labors and myself when we return. Nike is proud to be a sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, where it's go big or go home time as it relates to our guest, Dean Linky, joined by ECNL president and CEO, Christian Lavers. And Christian, we kick off the show with future U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer, Carlos Bocanegra. He's legit. And so is our next guest, Houston Dash forward Shea Groom, who scored three goals in the Dash's seven-game march to this year's NWSL Challenge Cup title, and now has scored three goals in the last three games of the NWSL Fall Series for the Dash is up next. Miss Groom, who played for G. Guerrero at Texas A&M, actually called one of her games for the then-named NSCA Game of the Week on Fox soccer channel. Shea Groom has spent time with the U.S. National Youth and Full Team System and just got called in again by Vlatko. That's exciting. Well done, Shay. And she just signed a well-deserved three-year contract with the Dash. She is absolutely crushing it. Groom joined the NWSL when FC Kansas City made her the 12th overall pick in the 2015 NWSL College Draft. She scored 17 goals in her first two seasons before being traded to Sky Blue FC. She spent the 18 and 19 seasons with Rain FC, scoring two goals in 15 appearances, and now she has made Houston her home. And let me tell you folks, Houston is loving her. She is from Liberty, Missouri, where she led Liberty High School to a state championship and was named the Gatorade Missouri Player of the Year twice in 2010 and 2011. She played her youth soccer for KCFC, starting with the ECNL back in 2009. And Shay Groom joins us now. Shay, thanks for being with us. Thank you. What an opening. My whole career there. <laughs> you deserve it. And as you know, I'm the voice of the North Carolina Courage, which I know is kind of a four-letter word, but you're killing the courage right now. Shay, what are you doing to me? Man, you know, you can't rain forever. Uh, we just had to break that up a little bit and throw some Houston Dash in there, trying to make a name for ourselves. Well, you're doing outstanding. I'm going to turn it over to Christian because it's so great to know that you started with ECNL to see where you're going now. Christian, Shea Groom, legit all the way home. Hey, and Dan, you probably need a water break after that intro. So, you know, <laughs> we'll give you some seconds to catch your breath. But Shay, thanks for joining us on the call. And obviously we could start in a lot of different places, but maybe we'll just start with you guys obviously won the Challenge Cup this year in some pretty unique circumstances in the NWSL bubble. 
So maybe give us a little bit of a sense of what that whole tournament was like, what it was like to win the, the final game and anything related to this year's crazy NWSL season. Yeah, I mean, how unique. We could have never expected that we were going to start this season and, you know, have to go into a bubble situation. But I think the unique thing about NWSL players is we're very flexible. We're <laughs> always ready to flip a switch and be ready for whatever's next. You know, you can be traded at the drop of a hat and you kind of just have to go with it. So I think we were prepared in, in that sense. And, and I think Houston faced a few extra battles in terms of having to bond quickly with people that we've never played with. I mean, our team was really new in relevance to a lot of other teams who kept a lot of the players that they had last year so I think we came in and you know tried to bond as quickly as possible and I think once we got that first game under our belt scored three goals which I'm not sure anybody probably would have guessed we realized we had something special and we kind of just kept developing it and rolling with it and we found our identity quick and and just tried to beat every team that came in our way well congrats and uh, you scored some big goals in that process I think the clincher at the end as well in the final with a fairly trademark celebration at the end. But going back, you've played for a, a couple of different NWSL teams, but you started your career in a really kind of special way, I think, because your youth coach, Hugh Williams, who is a, a lot of people call Hugh a friend, and I'd like to call myself one of them, was the GM of FC Kansas City when you were drafted, and Vlatko was the head coach there. So can you talk about what it was like to play for somebody who was also a key coach in your youth years and what it was like to play for FC Kansas City in those first couple of years were so dominant? Yeah, I mean, it was so special. I remember sitting at the draft thinking, you know, I had had conversations with Hugh and Black and they're like, look, there's no way we're going to get you. We don't have a pick till the second round, and I don't think it's possible. But, you know, they made it work, had the conversations they need to have, and it was such a special moment for me, obviously, getting to go back to Kansas City, where I grew up, fell in love with the game to begin with, and had my family there. A lot of my half-sister had never seen me play football and so to be able to come out to games and share that with my family was was so special and to be able to grow the game in Kansas City is something I was passionate about and and still passionate about so to be able to share it with the fans there it was so special for three years and and getting to do it with Hugh who had been a part of my career since the start and told me that I was special a special player for the first time and um, has believed in me every step of the way and then Obviously, the relationship I, I built with Vlatko, you know, he coached us a few times in my youth career, but, um, you know, he was the coach that made me the player that I am today and, and laid this path for me and, you know, again, told me that I was special and these are the things that make you great and how can we develop those and bring you to the next level. So it's really coming full circle, obviously, now him being the national team coach and having been a part of his journey as well. So it's definitely been fun and just excited for the next stage. Yeah, so not very many people can say that they uh, played for the national team head coach when they were also a youth player when he was coaching within the club. And I've sat on the sidelines against Vladko a couple times as well when he was just an ECNL coach, as you would say. So what would you describe it? I mean, because you played for him, obviously, a little bit in the youth. Then you played for him in the NWSL. And now you're going into camp here in a couple of weeks for the first time with Vladko as the head coach of the full women's national team. So what's it like playing for Vladko? How's he different? I think he's a very just coach. You know, he's going to be honest with you. He's going to tell you how it is and be hard on you when he needs to be. I think he knows his players very well. And for me, we've always had that very honest relationship where, you know, I look at him as almost like a father figure and, you know, somebody I don't want to disappoint and that I have 
just a really high respect for. So, you know, he's always going to be honest with you. He's never going to be satisfied. You can always do better and you can always do more. So he's always pushed me in that way and, and created that mentality just to never be satisfied and never be content with where you're at. And just to be a student of the game. I think that's what sets him apart beyond any coach is he's so prepared. He knows the game well. And even if he didn't, he, you know, he's always continuously learning and studying, watching film for hours on end, middle of the night. <laughs> you know, he's had a thought and goes back and analyzes it in the moment. So I think just his tenacity to always learn and, and be better himself and, and not be content with where he's at is what sets him apart as a coach. Let's go all the way back to the beginning then into your youth career, because you started your youth career playing predominantly in U.S. youth soccer through the, the Kansas State Championships and the regionals and the nationals and that circuit. And then the ECNL came late in your career. You finished playing in the ECNL before then becoming one of our personalities at some of the events that we've had. And I think when you're on site, everybody knows you're on site. You're not a shrinking violet, as uh, anybody would say. So what do you see when you look back to your youth time and you compare what you played in and how it was when you were a young player and then when you would come back to an ECNL event in the last couple of years and see the changes and everything. What do you think? I mean, I think it's incredible. It's so fun to be a youth player now. I mean, obviously COVID is <laughs> making things a little more challenging, but I've loved going back to ECNL events now. I mean, when I think about the events I went to growing up, you know, it was very regional, not many national events. Like if you went to a national event, it was like crazy. The fact that you're flying across the country and things like that. You're driving to whatever state in the middle of the country and you're getting your pressed on t-shirt, you know, with USU soccer last name or something something that uh, pretty cheesy but that was kind of the extent of it you know, maybe getting some cotton candy or something but that's the highlight of your trip and you know now I'm going to these ECNL events and it's like man there's photo booths and people doing snapchat and all these different activities just to make it memorable and and obviously the exposure with the college coaches making it worthwhile for them to come and, and be able to scout really good talent from all over the country and have it in one place. It's just been so special to watch and, you know, obviously working with ECNL now and being able to help grow it for girls and give them exposure they need to play at the next level and kind of dream that big dream of being a pro, but, you know, also playing division one soccer, but division two, three in AIA, understanding that there is another level to go to. And, and I've loved that aspect of it, but to watch it grow has just been so special and the opportunities they have now, it's um, second to none. Hey, I'm so pleased that you mentioned the exposure to college coaches because in steps G. Guerreri, who I've got mad respect for. I've got mad respect for the 12th man as well. Calling games there for Texas A&M is pretty special. And it sounds like you give ECNL a whole lot of credit for G. Guerreri finding you and getting you there. Definitely. They had their eye on me. And the reason I chose Texas A&M was, I think, just the loyalty I felt from them. You know, they I think a lot of colleges, not a lot, but some will, you know, give you a deadline. Hey, we got to know by here if, if you want to come. And, you know, they had made room and said, look, we know you're special and we're not going to rush this decision. We want you to come here on your own terms and we're willing to wait the distance for you. So, yeah, definitely ECNL gave me that kind of exposure and allowed them to see me in a lot of different games. So extremely thankful for that opportunity and, and that exposure. Shay, what are your thoughts about how G Guerreri helped you prepare for the next level? The cool thing about Texas A&M is that they still have the same coaching staff. I mean, G's been there the whole time that the program's been there, but, and Fillmore, I'm pretty sure like 16 years, something like that. So they have a really special thing going on there. And, and obviously the environment was, was so fun just for women's soccer and the growth of it. 
I wanted to go to a school that competed when they have made it to the NCAA tournament 20 something years in a row and just never kind of made it over that hump to the final four. And we were able to do it while we were there. Just a tremendous program. I think that prepared me competitively just to be a competitor and, and want to be better. I think I realized my potential there and what I could be. And, and obviously G Phil Lori had everything to do with that. So this year with Houston, I mean, how would you compare playing with Houston compared to the previous years in the NWSL? I mean, obviously the league has changed dramatically from the first couple of years when it started. And, and then you've seen it through the lens of a couple of different coaches. So if you look back at year one in the NWSL and then you look at now, what do you think is so clearly different about the league? Yeah, I think I've in some senses felt like a pioneer, you know, I, this is my sixth year in the league now, just crazy to say. And obviously there's so many people that walked before me, but I feel like I entered the league in, in its infancy stage and it's, you know, it's still there, but to be able to watch the growth of it, I, I would say the biggest difference, I mean, just playing for a club that's partnered with an MLS team is, is huge. And to see the support and growth, of these teams and just the standard raise, you know, every single year, you know, we're raising the standard, whether it's pay, whether it's just resources, you know, anything down to housing and, and contract stuff, you know, we're constantly pushing the envelope on how can we make this better and, and more professional. And I think I've seen that been arguably that 2018 season in Jersey with the worst team in sense of resources and, and support. And I will shout out and say they have come a long way since that. And their GM now has done a tremendous job of turning that organization around. But, um, you know, I've, I've been at the low. And now to, to be with a club that is supported by the MLS side and, and the men's side and, and to be celebrated is, is huge. And, and I think it's going to continue to be that way. And as these new teams roll in, you know, LA, Louisville, they're doing it the right way. You know, we're not entering these teams that just want to be here to be here. You know, they have their stuff figured out. They're branding a club and raising the standard by coming in and doing it right. Well, and one great thing too about the NWSL, and I think it's only going to get better. Yes, some players are going overseas, but you're going to see more of those internationals coming back. You get to practice every day with Rachel Daly, an absolute beast. So you're going head to head against these international players Shea Groom that can only make you better definitely I mean I think that's kind of the next step for the NWSL is can we attract more international players and I think it's funny to say that because we do have an incredible amount I mean Dabinia, Marta best in the world Sinclair score the most goals in all of soccer so I think you know we have that good foundation but now it's about making this the league that players want to come to and, and a lot of that has to do with the pay and again the resources the professionalism of it that some of the players in Europe are used to and I think we're still getting to that you know the year-round pay is helping the season will be extended next year I'm pretty sure so making it that full-time job feeling more than it already was I think will help and help attract those players because it really does add to our league and it's an incredible training environment when when you can get people from all over the world playing the same game and and just raising the level you went to the challenge cup and won that no big deal just check that box and then the league said that the challenge cup went well let's add the fall series which you guys almost won came close i saw your tweet that gave a, a little congrats out to portland on that 
and now you're going to the national team camp later on in this month. What's next after national team camp at the end of October? Is it some time off? Are you looking to do something else? What are you going to do over the next couple of months over the winter? It's definitely an interesting time. I think with the rest of 2020, like who knows what will happen. There will probably definitely be some time off. Not sure what the national team has in, in terms of other camps, but obviously just my goal is to perform well at this one. And again, whatever happens, happens. Uh, I said in an interview, I think, after our last game, you know, everyone's kind of ready to take a break. And I'm like, no, let's keep going. So uh, I think just being in a good training environment will be important for me. You know, getting home and see some family finally for the first time will, will be nice as well and nice to help recharge. But uh, I've moved a lot over the last couple of years and I'm excited to call Houston my home and kind of plant some roots here. So hopefully have some opportunities to do that in the offseason. Shea Groom, as you know, this pandemic has really shook us to our core and you think about the ECNL they have followed the protocol so safely but really over the last year there's been a lot of young girls that have been saying hey don't forget me and they've not been able to be recognized because at times they weren't doing the showcases they look up to you particularly because you're playing so well what is your words of inspiration to these young girls that missed out on that window at first to keep going, keep fighting, to live a shade groom type of story? As cliche as it sounds, I think sometimes, you know, it's just the don't give up attitude. I've had those moments in my career where one coach didn't see it in me and you got to live for the coaches that do and, and live for, you know, the person inside you that believes. And then sometimes it's just about, just continuing to walk the journey, whatever that looks like for you, and, and setting those marginal goals. Some things are outside of your control, but the things that you can't control, it's it's got to be 100% effort all the time. And once you realize that, I think that's what transforms the game for you. I'm, I think a big moment for me in college was just understanding that to go to the next level. You know, I the game wasn't as advanced as maybe it is now technical wise. And, you know, I had a lot of catching up to do. So I think taking ownership of those moments when, you know, you realize you got to be better and this is how you do it. And then just the willingness to do it is the best advice I can give to those girls dreaming that dream. Congrats on a great season and all your success. Good luck with the U S national team in camp. Knock a dead shade room. Thanks for being on breaking the line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks guys. Thanks Shay. Stay with us. We wrap up the show with Nuno Patera, the executive director for GSA Boys Academy, a proud member of the ECNL. Nuno, when we return on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean Linky. This is episode three of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, and what a great show it's been. We started with Carlos Bocanegra with Atlanta United, spent time with Shea Groom, an outstanding player with the Houston Dash who used to play in the ECNL, and now we go back to the ATL, as we like to call it, as we're pleased to be joined by Nuno Patera who heads up the Boys Academy for GSA. Nuno, 
Welcome to the ECNL podcast called Breaking the Line. Always a pleasure, Dean. Thank you so much for having me. We kicked it off with Carlos Bocanegra. He's the man for Atlanta United. What a great franchise. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I think that was the final piece of the puzzle for us, that kind of piece that goes in the, in the pyramid that all of our young people can, can kind of look to dream and know that that dream can become a reality. And so what Carlos has done, the ownership there with Arthur Blank, uh, Tony Annan, which was a guy that was like us in the trenches and has been their academy director. I think the work they've done, you know, speaks for itself. And even watching them last night against Orlando City, to watch a young man like George Bellow that I had the privilege very briefly of coaching an ODP and watching him make his way and I'll be a starting player as a left back, a homegrown player. I mean, that thing is... 100% what it's about, so no doubt. Well, he obviously had to be politically correct because, of course, you know, MLS is now getting into the DA workforce, I guess, for a lack of a better word. But he did a great job of saying every club in the state of Georgia is important to Atlanta United, and I feel like he meant it. No, I agree. I, I think Carlos was brilliant, was being humble enough to recognize that Atlanta had already a certain kind of history, a culture that was here. This is definitely a hotbed. Definitely one of the top six, seven cities in terms of top players competition and incredible diversity in terms of the players that are being developed here. So I think he was smart, humble, and connected with someone like Tony Annan that knew the terrain, understood how to connect with the clubs that were here. And I think, to me, leadership has always been about relationships. And I think Carlos and Tony did a phenomenal job of reaching out and connecting with all the clubs, every single one of them, and creating a personal relationship or cultivating it. And the reward has been that they have a great program and just as much they have a, a connection with the rest of us, as much as sometimes kind of hurts a little bit to see one of our players goes there because we're competitive. But on the flip side of that, 95% of the time we're celebrating because it's an opportunity for someone maybe to get closer to that thing that they're looking to fulfill. Before we talk specifically about ECNL, Christian Lavers, who joined me in the first two segments, and I told him I wanted to interview you. He's like, absolutely go for it. I've got mad respect for him. But he's kind of like you. He's got this bug now where he loves doing this podcast work. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? It is. I mean, you and I, you know, we've, we've done a couple. I've done one where I was interviewing you and your history and everything that you brought to the game. And we did a series of those during the situation with the COVID-19. And that was brilliant. It really touched my heart. And then you were as nice to do one for the United Soccer coaches. And uh, that was a thrill. I had the pleasure to be alongside with Alexi Lalas and so on. And so, again, it's just a thrill because the ability to connect with someone on the personal level and, again, to reflect on the things that we've done. And most of all, the people that we've been connected with, the sport has grown by leaps and bounds, like what you've talked about in terms of Atlanta United. I've told you the story before. I came to Atlanta in 1999 as the professional coach. I was coaching in the old uh, USISL, currently the USL. New franchise, Atlanta Silverbacks, they hired me. I'd been with the Charleston Battery for five years. This was even before pre-MLS. We were it. We were the league that gave the MLS that foundation. Either way, I remember, you know, 99, 2000, part of 2001, coaching the Silverbacks and literally 17, 18 years ago on the way to the stadium in prayer, hoping that we get enough people so that we could be payroll. And that was the reality of this thing 17, 18 years later. Someone was to tell me that this new arena called Mercedes-Benz was going to have 73, 74,000 people standing the whole time watching the game. And if you close your eyes, you could be at San Siro, you could be at uh, Benfica, 
uh, Stadium of Light, et cetera, et cetera. It is just incredible. And so I think for us to be able to do that and to connect and to do these type of podcasts, it's an opportunity to look back because more times than not, our thing is to look forward, look forward, look forward, especially in our passion to build the game. And sometimes we forget people like yourself and many, many others that have been there that have created this culture, this foundation that we can now celebrate and say, yeah, I remember when, you know, I was cutting grass and lining fields and mm-hmm. knocking on doors and convincing people that think this thing was pretty cool. And to think 25, 30 years later that we are where we are is pretty phenomenal. Music to my ears. And I know we share that same passion for remembering what got us here. I appreciate you always sharing that. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. You know, two weeks ago, we had John Bradford on and John Bradford said, hey, right now, during COVID, without question, who knows what the future holds, but right now, ECNL is the top level. And it always had been for the girls, but right now for the boys, it is. So talk about uh, your experience in the ECNL. Oh, it's exciting. I mean, we've been there from the get-go on the boys' side. Obviously, the same thing on the girls. The girls have been incredibly successful and one of the founding clubs that were part of that thing that was put together. And uh, they were that kind of role model for us. And I I realized real quick, even though we weren't part of the old DA, that that model worked. I think there was a stability that came with being part of a, a league that you as a club had earned your way in. And so not having to deal with some of the things that maybe were part of the old way, which, by the way, worked. And we had incredibly successful in terms of being a part of that. But there was an evolution. And one thing I know as someone that focused on education in terms of, you know, my college degree, I know that in certain ages, especially as kids are going through puberty, that stability and continuity is incredibly important. I think kids then, when they have those two things, they're able to not worry about this or that they can just dream and think about what they want to become. And that's a powerful thing. And so for us, that's what the league does. We earned our way in. We know if we have an age group that's struggling a little bit, we don't have to worry about that team getting relegated and losing a whole bunch of players with that. And so I think that took a little bit of the focus on what matters, which is, hey, we may not win all the games. We want to be competitive. That's part of the formula. But the focus has to be 100% on person and player development. And I think that model, the ECNL model, gives the clubs, the 135 now on the boys' side nationally, they've proven over time that they're able to not only be successful on a competitive level and producing top players, but to me, maybe more importantly, they have a formula to be part of the community and producing top people, young people that can go out in the community at a certain age and understand those things that come hopefully with team sports, you know, respect, hard work, all those values that sometimes we don't want to hear about, but they're at the core of us becoming successful. I also appreciate how nimble the ECNL has been in a time when we have to be nimble. We heard Mike Cullen say it in one of the shows, and we heard John Bradford say it in one of the shows, the ability to shrink the geography, to still get in games and make it work until we can truly open things up that's been important as well. It is. I mean, again, it's, it goes back to leadership. And I think Chris and over time has shown that uh, on the girls' side, why that thing had the success it did. Even when uh, the DA on the girls' side came in, it was a bit of a rival trying to kind of whatever. We as a nation, the growing pains that sometimes we've had to go through. But they're all positive. I think that this thing in terms of how it's been built, 
our DNA in this country is competition. And so I think at some point it may not be like the nicest thing, but as you get through it more times than not, you know, it, it is. And so, yeah, I agree, Dean. I think that, again, just being part of a, something, as I said earlier, that is stable and that leadership in Kristen and Jason being flexible, communicating with us, getting our input, giving the coaches the respect in terms of being in the trenches day to day and what their input or what they have to say matters and, and make decisions with that input, that's a powerful thing. And then being flexible. I mean, more than ever in a crisis, you show your real leadership. And we've been able to get through this. I know different parts of the country are dealing with different challenges, but I can tell you where we are that through all the challenges, man, it's been incredibly you know, positive to get back to doing what we've been able to do. And that's a reflection of Kristen. That's a reflection of Jason and everybody at the leadership level that's involved with the boys ECNL and the girls ECNL. No matter the situation, one of their taglines is more than a league. And no matter when you're playing, the idea is to win the league and win titles. And the ECNL promotes that as well. That's how you get better players, right? As uh, Jay Howell said, you put steel against steel, it makes tougher steel. There's no doubt about it. And I think, again, for us on a, you know, on a personal level is that that's what we've been able to get back. You know, for many, many years, we had some tremendous rivalries locally. Clubs competing for players, and especially going back 15, 16, 17 years where the player pool wasn't as deep as it is now. There's been a lot of mergers. I think, especially here in Atlanta, the last seven, eight years, we've had the integration of the Hispanic or the Latino player, and that pool of players has brought in enriched everything that's going on. So there's less of that stuff going on, but just as much that rivalry, that ability to know, like this weekend, we got two of them coming up. Our whole club, we got to go in there against AFU and NASA. And the last two nights, I've been tossing and turning. You know, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? Because these are kids that know each other. They've competed against each other for many, many years. And that rivalry, that intensity that you can feel from the parents and everybody else, uh, a lot of the stuff that a lot of us go, oh, we don't want to deal with, oh, that's actually what makes it pretty special. You know, when, when someone scores a goal, you're about five fields down and maybe a half mile down, and you're going, what the heck? There's an explosion of emotion of celebration because it's more than just a game. And, man, how can that not be healthy? I think for young people, in a positive way, learn to deal with a healthy level of pressure. That's the reality of life, and it's not to put stress on your young person. We want them to have fun, but we want them to have serious fun. And so when you compete, it's got to be a serious thing. And by the way, the reward on the other side, just like in life, is massive. And so, yeah, this ECNL brought that back for us because not being part of the DA, we had lost for six, seven years that ability, that opportunity to play the Concords of the world and some others that, again, were that thing. I mean, Concord and us for about a decade, with all due respect to the other clubs that were here, because there's a lot like NASA and others that I mentioned, but we had this intense rivalry in terms of who was going to win what stake up. Because if you won stake up in Georgia, you had a chance to win a regional title and get to nationals. And that, at the end, we were competing for that thing. And man, how was that not healthy? And by the way, Greg and I used to go at each other and now we're the best of friends. Greg being the executive director at, at Concord Fire. So. I truly appreciate that story about the fire for your games on the weekend. And it reminds me of even the godfather, Jerry Yagley, talking about how he still gets tingles this day watching his son. I get tingles before every game I call because it means that much. Clearly, it means a lot to you. Why is it so important for you to mold these young people both on the field and off? Well, I mean, for me on the personal level, Dean, I mean, that's uh... – 
that's a question that I think about often. I, I have a passion, a natural passion for what I do. I just incredibly fortunate that I get to do something that I absolutely love. And honestly, I don't know what else I could do. You know, I, I think, as I said to you earlier, I really started my career as a college coach and was lucky enough to be part of two great programs and then get the, had the opportunity as the professional game started to explode at, at the grassroots level to get into the old USL and so on. But at some point I realized when I was in Atlanta that really my heart was uh, about young people and my calling was more about trying to use the wonderful sport of soccer to try to kind of make a difference in young people's lives. And I happen to be at a club in the county that is the most populated county in the Southeast, the most diverse and the most soccer players. So me being an immigrant and the kid that came over at 14 with, with a you know, funny name, not knowing the language, knowing and learning my lessons through soccer and the mentors that I was lucky enough to have in this country, now it's my time to give back. And so when I have a young person that maybe had the same kind of journey I did, they don't quite speak the language and they look at me, which has happened and say, I can't do that. I, I can't, I, you know, this isn't this and that. I go, stop. Because all you got to do, buddies, look at me. I've been there. I've done it. So if a guy like myself that doesn't have a whole lot going on, but whatever, a couple little things here and there, if I can go and do the thing that I love doing every single day and love my life in terms of my journey, why can't you do the same? And so that for me became my calling and the thing that I look forward to every single day. And uh, it really is a lot more than a job for me. I'm not someone that got married. I don't have any kids. So really GSA, that community is really my heart. I don't want to get emotional, but that thing means an awful lot. And the three or four kids that are in MLS and the dozens and dozens and dozens that have gone on to play collegiately, just as much, man. We have a, another thousand kids that are out there doing wonderful kids that I still see at the supermarket, whatever. And there's that automatic connection, regardless of what level they were, they were GSA. They were part of a journey of something in a club that represents something in a community that has a history close to 50 years. And they can look at it and go, yeah, that was pretty freaking cool. And by the way, I'm starting to have kids. I want my kids to go and have that same thing. And to me, there's nothing more powerful in terms of my own journey than to be connected to a club that represents those values and being next to people like Campbell Chapman and Drew Prentice and Stephen Frazier that helped me cultivate that thing. Oh, I helped them cultivate that thing every single day. And man, I'm the luckiest guy on earth, Dean. <laughs> My mom and dad always told me to finish on top, finish on a good note. That was a great note, Nuno. That was a fantastic answer. And that's how we're going to end it. Thanks so much for being on the third ever episode of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thank you, Dean. All the best to everyone out there. And uh, keep chasing those dreams and keep kicking that ball, baby. Yeah, amen. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for always being there for me, Nuno. I appreciate it. Anytime, Dean. Glad that you're doing this. Kristen is a, a smart man. When I saw you coming on board, I'm like, these guys get it, you know. So <laughs> I appreciate it, the level that it is that you're part of our family, my friend. Thank you so much. Give your wife a big hug for me from one porch you sold to another. Always love it. All right, brother. Take yeah, care. Bye-bye. Sure. Always fun to spend time with Nuno and a nice way to wrap up the show. I want to thank the great Christian Labors as well as our other two guests, Carlos Bocanegra, going to be inducted into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, and Shay Room, crushing it for the Houston Dash. Just got called into a camp by Vlato Andonovsky, who, by the way, will be our lead-off guest two weeks from today in Episode 4 of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. 
for each and every one of you that are part of the ECNL family. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you in two weeks. ECNL is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.